Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Hey folks, Jason Bond, the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio. Is this a two-for-one, Tom? No, I don't guess this is a two-for-one. No, it's just a two-for. Yeah, Tom's here. We're doing back-to-back this morning. We did Drew Golson a few minutes ago. Now Brian's here. Good to see you, Brian. Good to see y'all. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Delta. I know probably hadn't been over here since Friday or so. Yeah, it's been about a week. <laughs> <laughs> so, we, we know, that's, And that's a long time for me. Yeah, yeah, as a, a lifelong resident. Brian's here this morning. We're going to talk about cotton, obviously, getting late in the year down to the short rows, so to speak, in a lot of areas. So we're going to cover some ground there. I would just would add to Brian that I always feel like I'm coming back home when I come down that hill and you see the sign there that says something about Delta being a national historic whatever. I, I stopped and looked at the sign. I keep meaning to take a picture of it. But For real? What sign? Haven't you seen those? No. When you get into the Delta proper, there's one kind of coming out of Vicksburg and there's one coming down the hill before Greenwood and I'm trying to think where there's another one. I think there's three of them. I'm obviously always watching the road. Yeah, I'm not aware of that sign, but I probably have a record of numbers of times passed in a, a one-year period. I would like to, I'm pretty sure about that. I wouldn't doubt it. I mean, I have to. I mean, <laughs> it's got to be ten times a week. You know, uh, maybe maybe fifteen. Clicker in the dash as to the number oh, of times you go back to places. <laughs> Keep my son out of your truck. He would want that thing every time he comes to my office. I find the thing in his pocket. He's always like, "Man, I want to get that thing off your desk so bad, Dad. <laughs> Dad, why won't you give me the clicky thingy?" I said, "Because you'll drive us insane with that thing." Is what does why. Ward need with a clicker? <laughs> what does Ward need with a lot of the things he has? That's, you know, I, I don't know what he envisions having that for. And you didn't think to ask him? Like, son, what? I just try to keep it out of his mind that he wants one of those. So every time he comes and visits my office, he's trying to smuggle the thing out the door. Or when What's, he gets into a truck or sees somebody getting in and out of a truck, I'm surprised he hasn't come down here during the day, talk Tracy into bringing him here and try and talk them out of a clicker. That's bizarre. I mean, it's kind of like the new spinner or something, you know, kids used to always have the spinners. It's not a huge investment, though, Tommy. Stocking stuff for, for Christmas, you could probably make that problem well, but, go away. But then I have to listen to the... He'll probably give you exact numbers on all the things you do. Oh, or the number of times I've said something or the number of times I've done something. So, Brian, I was thinking about this podcast this morning, thinking about what question that I was going to ask you. So I went through a variety of things. I actually have some... For later on in the fall now, if I can remember them, maybe I need to write those down. But Good idea. So is this a ag-related question? or is this No, no, it's completely unrelated. For those of you that don't know, Brian's got three boys, and they're like, let me guess, seven. six. Okay. okay, I'm a year off. All right, I'm a, you gave me seven. Seven, ten, and 12? Seven, nine, and 12. Okay. Leo was, just turned 12 like three days ago. I was close. All right, so three little boys – right in the middle of being little boys. So think back to when you were a little kid. What was the least favorite thing that you could eat when you were a little kid? Oh, wow. I was not a picky eater at all. My least favorite thing was probably, you know, I used to not like watermelon as a kid, and my whole family did, and that was kind of, <laughs> and it's mainly because I was lazy and didn't want the seeds. Uh, but I just wasn't a picky eater. Still, I still, I'm not a picky eater. 
Okay. We'll take watermelon. Now, I can tell you my kids, all three of them, have they're picky eaters. Oh, and my God. So yeah. you know where they get that from. Obviously, it's not me. I'm not going to tell you all Brian's wife's name because Brian just. And she's not a picky eater, <laughs> but still. <laughs> oh, mine is, man. My, my daughter, good Lord, she won't eat anything. My mom says she'll eat when she gets hungry, and she does. <laughs> uh, mostly it's trash, though. Tom? That's what keeps kids running. Yeah, I wish I had more. I wish I had a really good uh, least favorite food, but heck. I don't recall anything. Nothing really sticks out. I mean, I was sitting here trying to think about what that would have been. Oatmeal. Did not like oatmeal. Probably carrots or something. I still liked oatmeal. Uh, See, I like it now. I didn't like it when I was growing up. Oh, I'm not a picky eater now. I eat just about everything except hot dogs. Especially if it's got butter, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, Tom's a butter connoisseur. I have a small obsession with butter. Obviously, you've made several trips back and forth to the Delta and around the state. What What are you seeing when it comes to the status of the cotton crop right now, Brian? When I get into the Delta, the cotton seems to be a little further along, more advanced. And not to say that in the on the east side of the state, it's not. I mean, it's highly variable. It's been that way all year. But I would say... When I come to the Delta, I've noticed most of this cotton's cut out, maybe even a week past. And when I say that, I'm talking, you know, five nodes above white flower, maybe even um, that would be on average. Whereas, I mean, some of the cotton that was planted earlier is well past that. You can travel in any direction and find cotton that's a lot younger than that too. But um, I would say we're at least approaching cutout in the middle of five nodes above white f- flower or you know, some of this cotton is three nodes. Have we closed the gap on that planting date? You you know, when you've been on with us before this year, you talked about the later planted cotton have, has the heat that we've had over the past month. Have we closed that gap much at all? It's helped tremendously, especially the past two weeks. And we're closing the gap because we got back from MAIC when, I mean, it it looked like a different crop in in some regards, but you know, some of this cotton still got a long way to go. With that being said, I mean, the, the name of the game is heat units and the kind of weather we have because we don't have much margin for error. Even though it it's a compensatory crop and it's compensating the way it should, there's still a lot out there that could happen to it. So what are the concerns that you're hearing right now from the folks you're talking to? A lot of concerns with nutrient deficiencies, um, and it's late. For the most part, I'm not too concerned about the nitrogen deficiencies. We're seeing it low in the canopy. It's, it's not a situation that you'd want to apply now because, you know, like you said, that your crop is there, you're setting, you're filling out, you're relocating nutrients. I have had a few scenarios where it's a little bit different. The crop is fruiting high, it's semi-missing the middle crop, and a lot of young fruit on there. And we, we were seeing, uh, you know, low nitrogen, uh, potassium, and sulfur. So, in, in a situation like that, these guys want, I mean, they need to do something just to know that they tried their best. And the balance of it remains in the weather and finishing out the top crop. And obviously, in a situation like that, your yield potential has probably been damaged to some degree. Brian, on your graduate project, you did a lot of tracking nutrient uptake. And of course, that was on soybeans. But do you have a sense on, you know, nitrogen aside, but some of those other nutrients, how late? is just it's too late to really make up any ground if you're five nodes four nodes above white flower and you have bottom bowls set 
at that point, you're the time that it takes to get those nutrients in an available form and uptake and, you know, not it's going to, some of us obviously going vegetative. So just to get that to the reproductive structures, I think you're a little bit late now in a situation like I described earlier, where you have really young fruit and you're trying to fill it out and it's essentially like not really starting over, but you have a little time to make up some difference. So it's kind of like a, a salvage type situation, but a lot of this deficiency is not, true deficiency if you track it down to the root system it's usually in saturated soils poor root system things of that nature everywhere you you find a developed root system you're not really seeing these deficiencies or if you are is it's a problem like we talked earlier you'd want to try to fix that for next year tom i know last week when we talked about the root diseases in soybeans you uh, mentioned the fact that you get a lot of calls that end up being nutrient deficiency rather than a is there anything like that in cotton? There's a good bit of that in cotton. Most of the telephone calls that I receive this time of the year, outside of the occasional target spot or something in the lower canopy, which is typically where you will run across target spot, lower canopy, lower to middle canopy, more so in years where it's wetter. The last few weeks, this hot, dry weather is not typically conducive for target spot. There have been a few folks that have alluded to having some of that, but it's been a situation where they've put too much nitrogen out. They didn't do a good job managing canopy architecture, and they've got a cotton crop that's just growing off in a strange habit, and you end up with a bit more lower canopy issues. You do end up in some instances this time of the year, especially when it's been hot and dry, as as a consultant had pointed out yesterday, with a lot of what appears to be target spot in the upper canopy and most of those lesions are associated with uh, the potassium deficiency. But as Brian just indicated, it may not be a soil potassium deficiency. It's a plant deficiency based on source sink relationships and heavy fruit load and all the rest of that in that cotton plant. There are some strange things that occur as you start shifting nutrition to bowl production that end up taking a lot of that away from the leaves and you'll end up with what I like to usually refer to as just a bunch of trash fungi that'll grow on those leaves because it's something to grow on. The stemphilium and helminthosporium, if that genus even still exists, and cercospora, some things that you're not going to be able to control with a fungicide. You need to do something to to fix the source-sync relationship and that's not something that's easy at this point in the year to do from an adding nutritional standpoint. Yeah, and I'll say the same thing I said last week related to the soybeans. I think we're into that time of year, cut out or later in a lot of cases. The fields just aren't as pretty as they were, Mm -hmm. you know, five or six weeks ago when you were in that heavy vegetative growth and everything was lush and green. We're just past that point on most all of our crops at this point in August. So that's why it complicates things because – the source sink relationship that's established. I mean, you're transitioning from a, you're relocating from your lower leaves and you're going to the reproductive structure. So if you apply it to the soil, you already have a poor root system. In many cases, it will likely help you to some degree if you're far enough behind, which is not a place you want to be. There's no guarantees you're going to actually see this in the lint and added pounds at the end of the year. But in some situations, um, I I think it may have been warranted, but by and large, we're not recommending that. Yeah, many years ago, and I don't recall who had done the study, let alone where it was, but I remember looking at this with with Dodds, 
somebody had done a nutrient study where they were trying to add more nutrition in some of those instances and looking out across that field from a foliar standpoint, you could not tell the difference. You still had a tremendous amount of leaf spotting in the upper plant canopy that if it gets severe enough, you'll have some defoliation, but that's typically the result of the nutritional, and I don't know what word I'm looking for, the imbalance within that plant Mm-hmm. that's causing that defoliation because then your leaf spot just goes absolutely crazy. But, you know, then again, as I just said, it's hot and dry. You don't get a lot of reproduction from most of those organisms that will cause those leaf spots if you don't get some good rainfall or a mm-hmm. lot of dew production or, or something else that really adds to that. And if you reverse it at this time of the year, if you're far enough along, that's not always a good thing because everybody's ready to get done. It's time to be done, so you might run into late season diseases, vegetative growth to control, you know, and then defoliation issues, which I know it's a topic for another day, but let's say you're a week past cutout and you're at four nodes. I mean, you're getting, you're accumulating heat units now to take you to defoliation. So it could be a month away in many cases. I'd say on average for the cotton planted on time, maybe even sooner. Brian, you mentioned the number of times that you come to the Delta, and I know you spend a lot of time looking at fields and solving problems, but something that we talked with Drew about earlier this morning was the number of on-farm locations that he has. So how many on-farm locations do y'all manage in your program? We have 15 on-farm variety trials, and we have some – you're talking about just variety trials or just everything? Yeah, just on-farm stuff in general. I think we have probably – 19 locations. One's a target spot location. We have some uh, other different variety type things, but it's usually for an individual company. Then we have 15 of the, the big 10 variety trials. And those are scattered out statewide, correct? Yeah, statewide. I mean, for the most part, in your big cotton producing areas. Right. We have seven OVTs. We were supposed to have nine to 10, but several of them have failed due to the weather. It just got too late. I think we had one, two failed locations on the... Uh, on farm. So that's a big effort. And that's a point I wanted to make with Drew and then with your program too, that y'all spend a lot of time on the road and a lot of time looking at stuff in the different environments that our state has to offer. So on your own farm variety trials, Mm -hmm. is there a new one that's sticking out at you right now at this point in the year? Obviously we don't have any yield numbers, but just as the crop's been developing, is there a variety that standing out to you or maybe a couple on the all the own farm that i've looked at the varieties look pretty similar i can see height differences um on those particular trials we do not collect like a height and no data like we do on the ovts but based off what i've seen in the ovts i can tell different growth patterns and what i've noticed more than anything is across varieties we're fruiting higher than we did last year or that cotton tip that you want to see cotton do. So if you're wanting to have a fifth or sixth node first fruiting branch, that's not the normal this year. I'd say seven to nine, which is pretty high. And then, um, and that's across varieties for the most part. Do you have any idea of an explanation for that? I mean, I think it's environmental. If you trace it back, most of that cotton was planted between the, 15th and the 25th of May. And right after that's when we got into the cool, the second wave of cool, wet weather uh, through the middle of June. 
And the cotton that came up, or even the cotton that was up, just sat there. And I think that it wasn't progressing through the nodes like it was supposed to, and it didn't have the heat units to make a square when it was supposed to. And I just think that over time, that just pushed it up in a position or two. That's not hard science. That's just, no, I understand. If, you know, that's just my yeah, intuition of yeah, what I think it is. Because talking with Tyson, Matt Foster, Tyler Sandlin, which have similar, their regions, environments are the most similar to mine, and they're seeing the same thing. True cotton physiology is kind of a lost art. I'm bringing it back, Tom. That's, that's about all you really can say. That's, <laughs> there's not a lot of people that do that anymore. The bulk of the folks that have done that type of work have all retired. Yeah, At least that's been my experience. You know, that, that book was written, that blue book and that series was the first one. It was Cotton Physiology. You almost can't find a copy of that anymore. And the number of people that worked on that, I don't think they're around anymore, which is tough. And cotton's complicated. It's a complex plant. That's the thing I've learned in the years that I've been here. It's a pretty complex system. And that the whole source sink relationship that we talked about and all the rest of that's extremely complex. And that's not something I necessarily understand very well. Well, it's because it's a tree. There is a tremendous amount of truth to that. Botanically, it is a tree. The concern I have with the higher fruiting nodes, it basically is, I mean, what is that going to look like at the end of the year? I mean, because you're talking about two to three of your most important nodes, your first precision fruit. We, I mean, it can compensate. Yeah. But um, I just wonder if that's going to bite us at the end. So do you let it go a little bit longer? I think we're going to have to let it go as long as we can this year. And uh, if we get a cool snap roll through the end of August, 1st September, that's not going to be good. You know, nighttime, if we get down in the 50s, because well, we need every heat unit we can, I'd say at least through mid-September. And the tropics have been quiet up to this point. I did notice that there was a couple that they had their eye on yeah. way way out in the Atlantic maybe, you know, that had potential to develop but hadn't yet. But so far we've we've done well on those. Yeah, but there's still well. what, ten weeks at least for you know, until the cotton is beyond concern, longer than that, uh, for hurricane season. We know it's out there and this happens every year and I as a cotton farmer I've been bitten multiple times by tropics, but that's out of our hands. Oh, absolutely. But, I mean, it's a concern. We have to cross that bridge when we get there. Well, you're unfortunately getting there. This tends to be the active time in the tropics. Oh, yeah, it's like a magnet in the Gulf. Well, Tom, I have a question that I've been getting from a lot of growers about the uh, the blue virus in cotton. Who he did it. <laughs> we can edit this out, right? He did do it. No, I, th- I think we should leave it in there because I think it's a valid topic. <laughs> We should not be referring to that as the blue virus or blue disease. We do not officially have the blue virus or blue disease in this country. We have cotton leaf roll dwarf virus or CLRDV, which makes things a little easier, although plant pathologists like to be complex when it comes to naming those things. So educate me, why have the two been used interchangeably? Is it the symptom? Do the symptoms look similar or... There's a slight molecular difference within the genome of those. I didn't ask that. I asked why do we confuse them? Viruses. I can't answer why we confuse them. Somebody decided to name it that. But blue virus or blue disease, as I understand it, occurs everywhere outside of the U.S. right now. We have cotton leaf roll dwarf virus. Is it similar, like the symptomology? Symptomology is fairly similar. Yes, it's all based on molecular differences, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And that's, 
I'm, I'm not a trained virologist. So in my world, that'd be like the people that call sickle pod coffee beans. Correct. Pretty, yeah, yeah pretty similar. And that it, you got to bring it down to a level. It for causes me. tremendous confusion within the pathology community. You makes see, makes us pathological. Aren't that, don't look that similar to me. So. No, but, but some people call sickle pod, uh-huh. actually they call them coffee weed. I'm probably one of those people. To respond to your question, we have a sentinel plot program that's planted here in Stoneville specifically for CLRDV and CLRDV monitoring, and we have been monitoring those plots. And typically what we do is we take plant samples at 30, 60, 90, and 120 days after planting. We missed the 30-day samples. We did take the 60-day samples. Everything was negative. As of right now, I've only received two telephone calls where anybody specifically asked about CLRDV and in any of the cotton, and I've one walked, of those was from me. Yes, one of those <laughs> was from you, and so, well, maybe maybe I counted that appropriately or inappropriately. Two to three, we'll say two to three, <laughs> just to cover my bases. And in the fields I've walked, Brian, I've not seen anything that really jogged my memory that it could be CLRDV. And I think detecting that at the field level is rather difficult because. I think Jason had asked about symptoms. One of you asked about symptoms. Symptoms are really difficult to get a hold on simply because, A, with auxin herbicide technology, any of those trait-containing plants that then catch a sniff of the opposite herbicide, you can get really strange growth mm-hmm. patterns. That's how I've ended up there. I mean, that's and for real. Mm-hmm. A lot of the symptoms associated with those strange growth patterns as related to auxin herbicide injury issues can also appear very similar to CLRDV-related symptoms. The one that we really focused on years ago, and the only reason I I mentioned this one, was the accentuated plant height growth later in the season. We felt that that was a pretty good symptom as related to having plants having that virus in 2019. And then in 2020, strangely, everything we tested that looked taller in the field and stuck out like a sore thumb, for lack of a better descriptor, thrum, was, was huh? negative. What's a thrum? Thumb. I meant to say thumb. Sorry. <laughs> stuck out like a sore thumb. So we're definitely struggling with symptom expression because it appears that symptom expression differs within regions in this country and not just within this state because what Georgia sees is not what we see and what South Carolina is seeing is definitely not what we're seeing in the field. And that has made all sorts of complexities within that program. Um, but, you know, that is so everybody's aware CLRDV is aphid transmitted and that would then typically suggest that it would show up after high periods of aphid pressure so we should theoretically be getting into a situation now where we might run across that a little mm-hmm. bit more. But I don't think anybody needs to be alarmed about that because we don't have good, hard, fast numbers that talk about yield losses associated with that. And any of the field situations that have been referred to in the past where somebody said, oh, 90% yield losses, there ended up being something else that happened in that field that may have contributed, contributed to yield losses in that particular situation. Well, Brian O'Tom's got a date with a OVT in East Mississippi. Where are you headed from here? Probably going back to Starkville. I might pop in and see my parents real quick. Sure. Your mom will appreciate that. Oh, so. for, of course. We would like to thank our regular listeners 
we hope that the podcast has been bringing pertinent, up-to-date information. Keep up the comments and suggestions if you need any specific one-on-one time from any of us here or somebody else within the Mississippi State University Extension Service. Track us down. We're usually pretty easy to get a hold of on our cell phones. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for coming. Yep, you bet. Catch you guys later. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension.